Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. I want to start off with acknowledging a letter from one of our listeners. Her name is Ria. Ria Villarreal. It's a nice sound to it. Ria Villarreal. And she is out in San Jose, California. So, Ria, we thank you for writing to us. And the reason I'm mentioning your letters, first of all, is because you wrote to us. We always enjoy getting feedback from our listeners. But also because she brings up a very relevant question. It's about evangelizing the Eastern Church in the Spanish language. And she asked him about, is there any work being done in that area? In other words, are we reaching out to the Latino communities, the Spanish-speaking communities? Are we bringing the message of the Eastern Churches to them? So I'm going to answer her in my own letter, but I thought it was appropriate to mention Ria's request and her interest here, because we're celebrating today the Feast of Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, the descent of the Holy Spirit involved the fact that once the fiery tongues of the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles, they became brilliant men. They were already growing in brilliance, but they became very brilliant men to the point where they could actually speak in the language of many, many people, many people's languages. In fact, their enthusiasm, their charism, their energy, their inspiration, the fact that they could speak other languages made people think that they were drunk. The onlookers looked at them and thought, gee, they must be drunk. And it's so early in the morning already, they said, which would have been about nine o'clock in the morning. But they were not drunk, although in a sense they were. They were drunk, so to speak, on the Holy Spirit, intoxicated, but in a good way, with the Holy Spirit that came into their very minds and hearts and souls, and therefore into the very life of the church. And that same Holy Spirit, with that same power, exists within our hearts, minds, and souls, our bodies, for those who are baptized and chrismated in the church. And it exists with that same energy in the church itself. May not be an obvious sign like the fiery tongues, but there are other signs that actually are in their own way obvious. The Holy Spirit is indwelling in the church. The Holy Spirit is always with the church. And of course, this first happened on that first Pentecost, a little bit of history of Pentecost, and then get our 
Again, I refer to one of our handy resources, which I highly recommend. It comes from the Byzantine Seminary Press. It's actually a group of leaflets that give very brief but very comprehensive information on various aspects of the Eastern churches. So, from the leaflet from the Byzantine Seminary Press, we refer to the topic of Pentecost. And it says, in the Old Testament, the Jews were ordered by God to celebrate the Feast of Harvest on the 50th day after the Passover. Now, that's found in Exodus chapter 23. On the 50th day after the Passover. On the 50th day after the Passover. In thanksgiving for the harvest. And they were expected to make an offering of the new fruits of their crops. Hence, they referred to this feast also as the Feast of First Fruits. Now, that can also be seen in Numbers chapter 28. Since officially the harvest lasted for seven weeks, the day was also called the Feast of the Weeks. And that's in Deuteronomy chapter 16. So we have three references in the Old Testament for the origins of this Feast of Pentecost, which again is tied to the Feast of the Harvest. Now in post-exilic times, in other words, after the exile, the Jewish rabbis had a custom of motivating their liturgical celebrations with certain events of their sacred history. For example, they tied the Passover with the miraculous liberation of the people from the Egyptian captivity and the Feast of the Harvest with the Covenant of Mount Sinai. According to the records of the Jews, the Mount Sinai events took place on the 50th day of the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, since the Feast of Harvest was celebrated on the 50th day after the Jewish Passover, the Greek-speaking Jews simply referred to it as Pentecost. It's a Greek word. It means 50. Thus, at the time of Jesus, the feast was generally known as the Feast of Pentecost and was celebrated in commemoration of the covenant with great pomp and solemnity. Now, before his ascension, Jesus instructed his apostles to stay in Jerusalem and to wait for the promise of the Father, which was to be fulfilled in a few days. Now, that's in Acts chapter 1. So, after the ascension, they returned from Mount Olivet to the upper room where they spent their time in continuous prayer and worship in the temple. This was the first retreat of prayer and meditation made by the apostles, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the close followers of Christ. Now, according to Jewish tradition, Moses awakened his people in the middle of the night in order to proclaim the law of God to them. For this reason, in preparation for the Feast of Pentecost, the Jews would keep an all-night vigil during which they read the harvest and covenant themes from the scriptures. The readings were, interspers the readings were interspersed by the singing of psalms and spiritual hymns. And some prophecies are also read, like the one from Joel. Remember that famous one? I pour out my spirit on all mankind. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on my servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And that's from the prophet Joel, chapter 3. Now we can imagine the apostles at that all-night vigil. They listened to those prophetic words with great expectation. And down deep in their hearts, they must have sensed their imminent fulfillment. And this did happen on the very next morning. So they gather on the Sabbath, and then the next morning, what happens? Well, when they return from the temple and gather together in the upper room for morning prayers, and this is probably about nine o'clock in the morning, suddenly the Holy Spirit descended upon them, and we read in the Holy Acts of the Apostles this, when the day of Pentecost came, they all had met in one room. Suddenly they heard what sounded like a powerful wind from heaven, and noise of which filled the entire house in which they were staying. Then the tongues of fire appeared to them, and as they separated, they came to rest on the head of each of them, 
They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak foreign languages as the Spirit prompted them. The descent of the Holy Spirit took place on the Jewish Pentecost. This is in Acts chapter 2. Now, that coincided with the 50th day after the glorious resurrection of Christ. Therefore, the apostles also referred to this memorable event as Pentecost. You can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16 for that. But the celebration of this event as a separate feast came somewhat later in the second half of the 4th century. St. Gregory of Nyssa, a great Byzantine saint, in his homily on Pentecost, already referred to it as the great festivity of Pentecost. For the Christians, it marked the completion of the redemptive work of Christ and the inauguration of the new covenant, the covenant of grace which was poured down by the Holy Spirit. Pentecost is a constant reminder of our own baptism by the Holy Spirit, which we received at the time of our chrismation, or in other words, confirmation. Now, in some of the Eastern churches, such as mine, the Ruthenian Byzantine Catholic Church, what we do is we decorate our churches with greens, because in the Eastern churches, we emphasize the color green, meaning the Holy Spirit, giver of life. In the West, in a complementary way, they use the color red. The priest wears red vestments in commemoration of the fiery tongues that came upon the apostles at that first Pentecost. We also call this the Day of Roses because there was a custom that went oh, back a long time. It probably started in Italy and then eventually moved to the East. A custom of bringing roses and decorating the church with roses, throwing rose petals on the floor of the church and so on. And so it is sometimes referred to as the Feast of Rosalia, in other words, of roses. In either case, it's a beautiful, fragrant feast, a feast of flowers, a feast of greens, a feast of life. Anything has to do with life. We wear green vestments in the Eastern churches on Pentecost. And so the church is filled with the Holy Spirit just as it was on that first Pentecost. Remember, what happens in the Scripture is happening now. It's our story. It's our Pentecost. Every time we enter into the feast days through the liturgical life of the church, we actually enter into that event in a very mystical way. This is true. Think of the Eucharist. We don't sacrifice Jesus at every Mass over and over again. There is only one sacrifice that spans all time, and we enter into that sacrifice, that one and only sacrifice, each time we celebrate the Eucharist. Well, it's the same thing with all the other events. In this case today, Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit. We enter into that moment. So we are really like those apostles and those disciples. And when the Holy Spirit entered into them, they received many gifts, not only the gifts of tongues, but many other kinds of gifts. Now, there are five gifts of the Holy Spirit, five in particular. There's actually many, but there's five in particular, and we can read about them in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, the gift of counsel, which means it enlightens a person, the gift of fear, which means it's a profound respect for the majesty of God. It doesn't mean psychological fear. It means like awesome reverence, reverential awe. A third gift, gift of fortitude. Helps us to undergo trials and have courage and perseverance. The gift of knowledge. This means the ability to judge between right and wrong, to avoid temptation and be inspired by grace. The gift of piety means devotion, to consecrate ourselves to the Lord in prayer, to have that piety. The gift of understanding, which is given to the mind, it gives insight into the meaning of what a person believes. And finally, the gift of wisdom, knowledge that is so perfect, it directs the will to obey God's commands. See, wisdom is greater than 
just knowledge or learning or intelligence. A person without a lot of learning or even without high intelligence can actually be very, very wise. How oftentimes do we hear the wisest thing come out of the mouth of a child? (laughs) So wisdom, again, is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Knowledge is too, but it's a different kind of knowledge. It doesn't mean like book learning knowledge. It means that knowledge to know what is right and wrong as we're animated by the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk more about the charismatic dimension of the Eastern churches on this Feast of Pentecost. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com and then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at ByzantineCatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $15 or more, which includes shipping and handling, to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you. You're listening to Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Saving Jews from the Holocaust in a wheelchair. And now, a Sheptitsky Institute Minute with Father Peter Galadza. Archbishop Andrei Sheptitsky was born in 1865 in western Ukraine. He was an aristocrat who gave up his wealth to become a monk. He then led the Greco-Catholic Church in Ukraine through two world wars. Exiled to Russia for three years during World War I, Sheptitsky never again enjoyed good health. From 1929 until his death in 1944, he worked from a wheelchair. From that wheelchair, Sheptitsky coordinated efforts to save hundreds of Jews during the Holocaust. Next time, we'll tell you more about the Archbishop, who at the height of the Holocaust wrote, A lack of love is the source of every hardship and misery. Love is the very substance of all of God's revelation. To learn about degree programs in Eastern Christian Studies, visit sheptitskyinstitute.ca. That's S-H-E-P-T-Y-T-S-K-Y institute.ca. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. Very excited to be here with you today on this Feast of Pentecost. It's one of my favorites in the church. I have a real personal devotion, I must admit, a little bit personal revelation here. I have a rather 
deep personal devotion to the third person of the Holy Trinity for many personal reasons, which I won't get into here. They're all good, of course, but it's very deeply personal for me, the prayer and my relationship with the Holy Spirit. You know, we have, of course, the three persons of the Trinity. We each have a relationship with each one of them, even though, of course, it is with one God. Three persons, yet one God. Well, they have relationships within themselves. There's relationships between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're a union and communion of persons. They're interrelational, yet one God. And same thing with us. Yes, we relate to God as one God, but in three persons. In a sense, in three different ways. Our relationship with Christ, with God the Father, and the Holy Spirit. So this is a real meaningful feast for me, and I hope that comes across to you. I want to involve you in it. I want to get you caught up in the spirit of this Holy Spirit feast day. (laughs) And we said that we receive the church and the apostles individually and as church receive gifts of the Holy Spirit when the Spirit comes into us, when it indwells in us. And there are many other gifts besides the ones we mentioned, but there's also then fruits from those gifts. In other words, if you have the gifts of the Spirit, then it's going to come out in certain fruits, meaning the ways that we behave. And some of those fruits are found in Galatians chapter 5. They are love, peace, kindness, generosity, goodness, joy, patience, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness, modesty, and chastity. Now you notice all those things are qualities which can be sometimes elusive in our lives. (laughs) And that shows you that they are fruits of the Holy Spirit because it takes a lot to be peaceful, kind, generous, good, joyful, chaste, modest, faithful, have self-control, gentleness, and patience, doesn't it? Those are the areas that we often transgress. And that's why it's a sign that the Holy Spirit is in us if we actually show those kind of qualities, those kind of qualities come out as fruits of our behavior inspired by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So we are as Christians, in a sense, automatically or naturally charismatic. Charismatic means spirit-driven, spirit-inspired. Yes, there is the charismatic movement, which is its own action of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit acts in many specific ways. But overall, We are, as Christians, by being baptized and confirmed, having the sacrament of confirmation, we are by nature charismatic. And so is our church, East and West, but in a particular way, the Eastern churches are very charismatic. Have you ever experienced their liturgy? It might be very reminiscent to some of you, especially if you are part of the charismatic movement, because there is a constant singing to certain tones. In fact, sometimes people would hear our liturgy and think that we were actually speaking in tongues or singing a certain tone of the Holy Spirit that people of the charismatic movement know about. But we have our own specific chant, and it's an ongoing chant. We sing unceasingly in our church. And there's lots of movement. There's a fluidity to our liturgy, to the movement, and it's very integrated. And there's a lot going on in terms of our senses. There's something you see, something you smell, something you touch, There's things you do with your body, you know, reverential kind of actions, things you do with your lips, things we taste and smell. So the liturgy is actually very charismatic. It's not passive. It's very active. It has a passive dimension to it, but it's actually very active because we're animated by the Holy Spirit. And on the Vespers for Pentecost Sunday, we say this, Behold, we celebrate today the Feast of Pentecost, the descent of the Holy Spirit, the fulfillment of the promise and the realization of hope. How wonderful and awesome is this great mystery. Therefore, O Lord, and creator of all, we cry out glory to you. And 
There is a couple of prayers to the Holy Spirit, one in particular that we say at the beginning of every form of prayer in the Eastern churches. We call down the Holy Spirit upon ourselves right away. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who everywhere present, fill all things, treasure blessings and giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O gracious one. This is how we pray. The scripture says we don't really know how to pray as we ought. So the Holy Spirit prays in us. So the first thing we do in all of our services, especially our liturgical services in the Eastern churches, is we call down upon us the Holy Spirit so that we can pray. The Holy Spirit can pray within us. Now, we receive the Holy Spirit in a number of ways, but the principal way, of course, is at the second sacrament of initiation in the church, and that is chrismation or confirmation. In the ceremony for chrismation in the Byzantine church, we have a litany that precedes the prayer of the priest. That's always a a way that we pray liturgically. There's a litany, and then there's a major prayer, then the action. And we pray this way. These are examples of some of the litanies. The deacon will say that by with the anointing with this all-holy, saving, and perfecting chrism, the newly enlightened servant of God may be given divine power to conquer and overcome all the hostile deceit of the devil in the assaults of the flesh in the world. Let us pray to the Lord. Now, I'll stop for a moment and explain something there. It says that we are anointed. We're anointed with a holy chrism. Now, the chrism has many fragrances in it. It's a secret recipe, and it's put together by our Sisters of St. Basil in Mount St. Macrina in Uniontown, Pennsylvania. And then that secret recipe of ointments, fragrant ointments together, it makes a one oil, one ointment that looks greenish in color, but it's actually made of many fragrances and many oils. And it's sent to the bishops, and on Holy Thursday, the bishops consecrate that oil in a big urn. They actually call down the Holy Spirit upon it. And then they distribute that to every parish. And that is the way in which the bishop makes himself vicariously present at each parish. The chrism is used by the priest, and in the Eastern churches, the priest can chrismate, but he does so acting really on behalf of the bishop. In other words, the bishop is really chrismating the individual by way of the priest, and because the priest is given that consecrated oil, consecrated by the bishop. So it emanates from the altar of the cathedral, where the bishop is on Holy Thursday, outward to each parish. So it's like the bishop extending himself through the oil and through the priest to every parish. We also say this in the litany, that by the anointing with this most holy chrism and by the power, action, and grace of the central Holy Spirit, this person may become a brave and victorious witness of Christ our God. Let us pray to the Lord. That by the anointing with this most holy chrism, they may be firm, strong, and steadfast in true faith, love, and hope all the days of their life. Let us pray to the Lord. That by the anointing with this holy chrism, they may be given the grace to profess the name of Christ our God before all people without fear of shame, and be always ready to accept suffering for his sake with love. Let us all say, Let us pray to the Lord that by the anointing with this most holy chrism, they may grow in all virtues and grow in the commandments of Christ our God. Let us say to the Lord that by the anointing with this most holy chrism, the power, action, grace, descent of the Holy Spirit may grow to complete maturity in the fullness of Christ. Let us pray to the Lord. Those are some of the litanies as we prepare the person that's going to be chrismated. And if they're chrismated, it means they must have already been baptized. And usually this happens at the same service in the Eastern churches. The three sacraments are given together in sequence, but within the same basic moment. They're given as baptism, 
chrismation or confirmation, and then brought to their completion in the Eucharist. So we enter into the church and the life of the Trinity, and we seal that through chrismation and then bring it to its ultimate unity and perfection in Christ and his very body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And the Eastern churches have preserved this sequence. And that's why you see in the Eastern churches, babies baptized, confirmed, and receiving Holy Communion all at the same time. Because in the Eastern churches, we give these sacraments of initiation to those candidates regardless of age. So if it happens to be a baby, which most baptisms are these days, the baby gets all three sacraments. However, if it's an adult, the adult gets all three sacraments. So the age doesn't matter. And sometimes people may wonder, well, what about the baby not knowing what's going on? It's a good question. And it's answered in the Eastern churches this way. First of all, we find evidence in the scriptures early on, especially in the Acts of the Apostles, that entire households during the early part of Christianity were baptized, meaning father, mother, and children. Secondly, nobody really understands fully any of the sacraments, no matter how much you're taught that. Look at marriage today. How much do people who get married really understand the sacrament? It's obviously don't, with unfortunately with such a high degree of divorce and even annulment in the church. So it's not that we don't learn about the sacraments. We must learn about the sacraments, but we don't always have full knowledge. We can't possibly have full knowledge of any sacrament in order to be worthy to receive it. Thirdly, just as in baptism, the sponsors for the candidate for baptism, in other words, the godparents, are also sponsors for that child for confirmation, and they act with their knowledge on behalf of that child. Fourthly, the child presumably stays close to the life of the church and grows in the knowledge and wisdom of these sacraments. They're taught about confession. They make their confession at the same age as other children, seven and eight years old. But they learn about all the sacraments as they grow. But their full knowledge is not a prerequisite to receiving these sacraments. And the knowledge that is required is done so by proxy, on behalf of the candidate, by virtue of the godparents or the witnesses. There's so much more to talk about in this wonderful, charismatic dimension of the church inspired by the Holy Spirit on this Pentecost Sunday. And we'll get to much of that in other programs. I want to thank you for listening today. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab. And on iTunes, Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh.